Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is your host, Bob Wintermute, welcoming you again to New Books in Military History. This week, we are interviewing Stephen H. Jaffe, the author of the recent book, New York at War, Four Centuries of Combat, Fear, and Intrigue in Gotham. Many people, myself included, are no doubt surprised to learn about New York City's rich 400-year-long military history. And I teach... At one of, in, the, in Queens at one of the country's largest public universities, the City University of New York. There, in my American history survey classes, I strive to bring as much of the city's history to bear as possible. I could say that after reading Stephen Jaffe's book, I realized that I could do a lot more covering the military history of New York City. Jaffe escorts his reader on a dramatic tour of the New York area at war. From the settlement of New Amsterdam by the Dutch in 1624 to the explosion at the Black Tom docks in Jersey City during the First World War to the city's response to the September 11, 2001 attack on the World Trade Center and beyond. It is an entertaining and informative tour. Overall, New York at War is a pleasure for all of its readers, but it should have a special place for those of us from the metropolitan New York area. One last note, this is a double-length interview, as there's so much in Jaffe's book to uncover and to learn. Hello, Steve. Hi. Hi, Bob. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. Everybody, today we're talking with Stephen Jaffe, an independent historian who has worked in the past with the New York Historical Society about his recent book, New York at War. Now, my own academic job is at Queens College, City University of New York, so I was automatically drawn to this book. In reading it, I was amazed at the level of detail Stephen introduces as he creates a portrait of Gotham over four centuries of military history, from the settlement of New Amsterdam by the Dutch in 1624 to the city's response to the September 11, 2001 attack on the World Trade Center. New York at War is a pleasure for all readers, but it should have a special place, I would think, for any listeners from the metropolitan New York area. Stephen, you want to say a few words about yourself and what prompted you to pursue the project? Yeah, sure. Um, I am, by training and inclination, really a, uh, I would describe myself as an urban, cultural, and social historian. I'm not primarily a military historian, mm-hmm. but um, I'm, a, I'm a native New Yorker. I grew up in the city. I currently live in the New Jersey suburbs in a town uh, called the Maplewood, New Jersey, which is about 15 miles west of lower Manhattan, mm-hmm. um, and have been living here for oh, about uh, 15 years. Uh, but... <sighs> The reason I wrote the book primarily was that on September 11, 2001, uh, I was not in the city. I was out here in New Jersey, but uh, I was at the time working 
as a historian and curator at the South Street Seaport Museum in Lower Manhattan, mm-hmm. um, which is a history museum dedicated to uh, to telling the story of, of New York City's uh, connections to uh, the sea and to immigration and maritime trade over the centuries. Right. Um, and a place which is which your listeners, if they're in the area or visiting New York, should very much uh, uh, go and visit because it's oh, still open to the public. Yeah. Um, anyway, I was working there on staff, um, and, but that morning I didn't make it in. Um, and uh, when I made it back in, I, I should say, first of all, I begin the book very briefly with the anecdote of the fact that on September 11th I went to a hill, a public park near my home and 15 miles out you got a very uh, vivid view of the uh, Twin Towers billowing smoke after the two planes hit and the young man was standing on a bench in this park and while I remember him he was distraught you know as we all were of course and he yelled out it's time to bomb some mosques and I did not take that as a re- of course as a reasoned uh, a statement of you know position statement policy statement it was a it was a cry of anguish and rage <clears throat> um, but that stuck in my memory um, and once I got back to work a few days later and uh, and started thinking about New York City's history what I did know already about the city's history and and, and questions that that emerged as I started uh, I started probing a bit more realizing that really the New York City cityscape really is a military cityscape, a historical military cityscape in ways that, uh, you know, the overwhelming majority of us never think about or don't know anything about. Well, so that's say, what, you know, for those of us who don't remember, you know, the, the military's always had a large footprint in the area. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. A- absolutely. I mean, the problem in terms of the interesting question there is, of course, because New York became the largest, in terms of population, the largest city in the country very early. I mean, by, you know, the 1810s, it's mm-hmm. surpassing Philadelphia. Uh, it's such a large place, you know, that the military presence is is easier to miss. I mean, San Francisco, you know, is a, is a, is a great, a, a, a fantastic city. It's a much more compact, so the Presidio, you know, mm-hmm. the forts and so forth, just to take one example, are much more sort of prominent relatively, you know, in, in the sort of the public memory and public consciousness of the city. The other thing about New York that's interesting is because it is, um, has been such a, a great and important uh, seaport, and because it's perched right on the edge of the Atlantic, so many of the military fortifications over the centuries yeah. have been facing the sea. And they've been a little bit remote, certainly from uh, from the, the you know the center of action in Manhattan. Although that was not true in the early days, of course. But in in you know over the last you know century or so, certainly um, century and a half, uh, if not more, the the major military fortifications have been on the periphery of the of the city, and it becomes that combined with the with with the sheer size and and demographic, you know, population size of the place makes it easy to overlook um, the, uh, the, the, the military presence, unless you have some direct uh, affiliation with the military. So that was part, you know, part of the story of the book is, is retrieving or excavating, if you will, um, 
the presence of the military, um, but also the impact of war on daily life, on the on the viewpoints and consciousnesses, and you know fears and expectations of New Yorkers um, over the centuries, um, and it really was a, you know a, a, a challenging and remarkable thing to research, just because again so much of this has been. Um, uh, downplayed is the wrong word. Neglected is perhaps the, the better word. So that's what I was trying to do in the book, was to retrieve this, this military narrative of the city's history going all the way back, as you mentioned, to the Dutch in the early right. days. Right. Well, I mean, firstly, when you know, I teach an American survey course, and mm-hmm. you know, I only briefly cover the cultural exchange between Native Americans and the early settlers when I have no choice. It's a, it's a very right. you know, long-span course in a short time. Yes. And I, I only touched peripherally upon the Dutch settlement of New Amsterdam, and you know, I found it fascinating reading about their their far more ambiguous relationship with their Indian mm-hmm. neighbors than casual histories have portrayed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and and it is I you know a, 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 ambiguous and ambivalent. I think are the are the key words here. You know, mm-hmm. um, in in the sense that the Dutch came uh, with uh, the intent. To uh, buy land from the native peoples, not to, not to just seize it at gunpoint. Um, they had a very, you know, because the prevailing religious culture that they brought over was Calvinist. They had a very strong, palpable sense that if you, you know, if you if you do wrong by the Indians, mm-hmm. God is not going to be happy with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, he's not going to be happy with the Dutch settlers, and and they believe that, you know. And so the intention, on one hand, is is good, um, and also they have to re- they're dependent on the on the Lenape and Iroquois Indians of of um, of the region yeah. for the fur trade. Uh, however, um, as the Dutch spread out on the land, as they introduce alcohol, mm-hmm. um, which is always toxic in these, you know, in these um, in these encounters, and sadly enough, you know, continues to be. If you just look at the ongoing. <sighs> Tragedy, I think it's fair to say, of of what goes on in Indian reservations today in the U.S. The the, the, the alcoholism, you know, is just staggering. Yeah. That that the Dutch and as well as other European immigrants. I don't want to put this off just on the Dutch, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that you end up having friction, you end up having misunderstanding, you end up having conflict, and the Dutch respond ultimately to the Indians in an almost genocidal way. Uh, not to say there aren't Dutch settlers who who are who are um, who are appalled, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, including the one gentleman who I, I profile somewhat in that chapter, uh, David De Vries, right. who was a remarkable Dutch settler, seaman, um, uh, plantation owner, who recognized that uh, apart from anything else, you know, here you are, this little. Dutch settlement on the edge of this wilderness, and you're surrounded by native peoples, which of course is one reason there's so much tension. Yes. Uh, and, and but that that you know if you if you if you attack them in a kind of thoughtless 
way that's sort of strategically not thought through. Um, it's your own people who have their farms, you know, out on the periphery of the town of New Amsterdam, whether their farms are in northern Manhattan or in what is now New Jersey or on, you know, what is now Brooklyn and Queens, uh, Staten Island and so on. Um, those people, your own settlers, are going to be the ones who stand in the line of fire once the Indians are aroused. So um, it's a tragic history. It's a bloody history. Um, and really the upshot of it all is that by really by the end of the Dutch period in the 1660s, um, the native uh, Lenape people, who were the Indians in the, in the, um, in the New York uh, estuary, the, the area around where New York is and, and certainly uh, Long Island and, and adjoining parts of New Jersey and the Hudson Valley, had been vanquished, you know, partly by European diseases, but, mm-hmm. but, but largely militarily. Um, and their presence sort of steadily recedes in the region so that, you know, today really the only vestiges we have of an, of an Indian, of a Lenape presence are in these names, you know, Canarsie and Hackensack and so forth uh, that dot the landscape of the region. Um, and it's a sad history, but it also, again, emphasizes this is something we're not really generally taught in school. And I grew up in the city. I know you grew up, I believe, in West Virginia. In, in, in New York, of course, the curriculum at the elementary and middle school levels, I mean, it may have changed in the decades since I've been in, in school, but certainly um, um, this part of it is underplayed. You know, it really isn't, isn't developed. When I, when I lecture on this, the thing that I say to people is, um, you know, the road to wounded knee that we think of, of, of uh, you know, by 1890, you know, the, as the frontier is closed, uh, the, the Western Indian peoples are vanquished by the U.S. Army. Um, the road to wounded knee started in uh, New York Harbor in the 1600s, just as surely as it started in um, in Massachusetts Bay mm-hmm. in the same period, or the Chesapeake. Right. Uh, I mean, the roots the roots of the Indian, the Euro-American and Indian conflicts uh, that then go on for you know what almost 200 years. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, start in the 17th century in all of these colonies, the Dutch one as, as well as in the English ones on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to. Uh, I'm glad you. I'm, I'm glad you found that interesting because it does strike me as being a dimension of the story that that uh, that scholars certainly know about, but that on the level of. Um, uh, you know, even on the college level, uh, desert merits it merits more uh, more uh, awareness on the part of students. Yes, I yeah, really do a, think so. It, it certainly does. And I, again, I try to do this in my own survey. I'm not tying my own horn, but I try to do this in my own survey. Yeah. And now right. I have, I thankfully, I have more grist for that. Um, well, good with this book. You know, and, you know, we're talking about the the transition between you know, where you introduced the idea of Anglo or a European-Indian relations being not merely an Anglo-Indian exchange. There's certainly a Dutch role in it. But the Dutch role is short-lived because in 1664, the English acquire New Amsterdam from the Dutch, and they rename it New York. That wasn't a very smooth transition, was it? Um, You know, I think the answer, frankly, is yes and no. Mm -hmm. Um, On the one, the, the yes is that when all is said and done... Um, most of the Dutch settlers, and of course 
it's not just Dutch. That's one, the other thing that gets overlooked is that um, some scholars think that maybe even 50% of the, of the Europeans who settled in, uh, in, in what is now the New York City area under the Dutch were not, were not Dutch. Mm-hmm. They were Scandinavians. There were even English. Um, there were French. There were even Czechs from Bohemia. There were Jews, uh, you know, Sephardic Jews. All these different peoples come. Uh, but the point is the Dutch, the, the, the sort of uh, prevailing culture and language is Dutch. Um, but when the English sail in in 1664 and, and seize the place from Peter Stuyvesant, the the governor, the Dutch governor, mm-hmm. uh, on, you know they seize it in the name of uh, the Duke of York, who later becomes James II, King of England. Most of the Dutch ultimately uh, uh, accept it. However, the so that's the yes. The no is that. Um, um, that in um, the 1670s, the Dutch sail in again with a fleet, a small fleet, and, and, and sort of due to the English, what the English had done to them a decade earlier, seized the place at gunpoint. There are a small number of casualties. Um, and for the better part of a year, New York reverts to the Dutch, um, and they rename it New Orange. And many of the Dutch are happy to have the Dutch back. But then in... in in um, negotiating the end of this Anglo-Dutch war, which is sort of global uh, in the 1670s, the Dutch and the English do some horse trading, and uh, and the uh, the Dutch uh, agree to give um, New York, the New York area, back to the English, and so that transition, you know, happens. And while some of the Dutch may grumble, um, they recognize that the English actually share a lot with them. They share Protestantism. Mm-hmm. They share a uh, commitment to maritime trade as sort of the driving engine of the colonial economy. Um, and, um, and there is one sort of final last hurrah for Dutch nationalism and Dutch religious fervor, which is in 1689 when a guy named Jacob Leisler, who had, been, had served the Dutch West India Company as a soldier, um, starts a little rebellion in the town against English rule, um, ends up being sort of a coup d'etat. He basically sets himself up as a dictator. The English come back quickly, and, uh, and uh, there's a standoff with some gunfire. They arrest a Leisler and eventually execute him. And, and, uh, but that's the last hurrah. So, uh, you know, you ha- as you know, history is very complex, and you you can look at it both ways that that you have armed militant people who uh who want to restore dutch power uh but when it push comes to shove the the civilian population by and large sort of stands by and uh and accepts what comes mm-hmm. so that in fact once the english really um really you know, are there for good. Many of the Dutch citizens who had come over, who were who were, who were uh, uh, old enough to have uh, come over in the Dutch period, not only adapt to English ways, but get, you know, uh, resume um, transatlantic trade. You know, shipping uh, under English auspices. Some of them become um, um, civic leaders and public officials under the English. Um, so, uh, so you don't have, in other words, a large cataclysm, you know, 
but it is a complicated situation because, and this is, of course, one of the one of the themes of the book, which carries through, and really from American history, is where you have immigrants, um, the 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 complexity of of loyalties, of what does it mean to be an inhabitant of a new land, and yet you're bringing over allegiances, cultures, you know, religious loyalties, national loyalties, ethnic cultures, and so on. That that. Uh, may predispose you to have a very ambivalent or complex relationship with uh, with the dominant culture that you find when you immigrate. Yeah. Prior to the revolution, the American Revolution, right. was, you know, slavery was considered a fact of life in New York, yes. you know, as well as anywhere else. You know. Yes. However, there are, there are problems, of course, in New York, which we, mm-hmm. we see echoed elsewhere. And I, I have to ask, I mean, based on the book, you know, how serious was the threat of slave revolt in New York? There was at least one sort of bona fide slave rebellion in 1712, where, um, and, and, and very interesting because uh, the slaves who rebelled and were ultimately captured, they, they killed several white uh, New Yorkers, but the town, of course, mobilizes and, uh, and, and, and captures them and executes them. What's interesting about that is that uh, several of the slaves who were caught and executed for rebelling uh, were apparently from the what were then known as the Coromantee people, who were an Akan people, A-K-A-N, from the west coast of Africa, now primarily uh, Ghana. And they had an ethnic tradition in Africa of being very proud warriors. So you have a non-Western military tradition, perhaps, and of course we know precious little about this because we don't have you know the in-depth uh, in-depth vantage point of those African enslaved people mm-hmm. uh, in New York. But uh, but you do have a non-Western military tradition or military culture anyway, you know, being imported into New York, unbeknownst to the slave owners and the slave traders, and these folks, these guys in 1712, sort of get their act together and decide, and perhaps even realize that it's suicidal, but uh, mm-hmm. that perhaps you know their their code of honor or their their warriors' code perhaps even dictates that they uh, that they revolt. Anyway, that's one. Uh, slave revolt, what we know about. The more complicated and sort of uh, enigmatic series of events unfolds in 1741, where New Yorkers basically panic when a bunch of fires break out, mysterious fires break out throughout the city uh, over the course of a month or so in early 1741. And it becomes a that slaves, African slaves in the city, are setting these fires, perhaps in conjunction with some kind of mysterious plot, secret plot, uh, between the, the slaves and agents of France and or Spain, because this is a period in which um, the, 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 what was known as the War of Jenkins' Ear is becoming King George's War. In other words, the early 1740s, the English Empire is at war with the French and Spanish empires. Um, and there's this... Uh, rather paranoid fear that uh, once these fires start, White starts thinking, well, maybe there's a plot where the slaves are in contact, and they're going to call, and they're going to burn down the city, and, you know, the French or, Inca, the French or uh, Spanish fleets, or both of them are going to sail up the bay and take the place. 
further exacerbated this kind of fear by anti-Catholicism, mm-hmm. because France and Spain, of course, are Catholic. Uh, English New York is Protestant. Um, and, uh, however, there are Irish troops in the city as part of um, His Majesty's uh, uh, army. And so then the thought is, well, maybe the slaves are also in cahoots with Irish, secret Irish Catholics in, you know, in the garrison in, in, um, in uh, Fort George, which stood the main garrison in the city, which stood at what is now um, Bowling Green at the foot of Broadway by Battery Park. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now uh, what ends up happening is uh, I believe it's 30-some-odd blacks and a few whites are executed uh, for this alleged plot. It becomes a real witch hunt, however, where they, they, they interrogate black slaves, and it becomes clear that if you name names, if you, you know, divulge the identities of others, of your co-conspirators, maybe you'll be spared death. Mm. And so people have, culp- uh, uh, rather, um, suspects have a real vested interest in making up stories about, oh, yeah, well, this one and this one and this one, you know, my friend so-and-so and so-and-so are in this yeah. plot. So it's a good me. way to settle old scores, too, you may have. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You, you don't like someone, so you've got to name them as your co-conspirator. So this thing kind of snowballs. Um, by the time 30-odd people are either hanged publicly or literally burnt at the stake, which is kind of remarkable, but in 1741, you know, 25 years before the American Revolution, they're still doing that um, in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, by, the time, by the time people start uh, asking questions, and what happens, of course, is that it escalates to a point where one of the white it, it, the, the parallels of the Salem witchcraft trials are really fascinating, as people at the time even recognized, because Salem had take that had taken place in the 1690s. Generation uh, earlier, yeah. Yeah, uh, that, that there's a white servant girl who helps to start fan the flames of this by claiming that she's been privy to this big plot, uh, and it gets to a point where she starts act. Uh, intimating that maybe the plot is even higher, that the royal governor is part of it, that she gets a little bit too big for her britches. And by the time it, this whole thing sort of winds down, you know, 30-odd people have been executed, and I think it's 80 slaves have been uh, basically sold out of the colony to get them the heck out of New York so that they can't burn the place down. I mean, the, re- the other interesting thing is, of course, how mo- modern historians have disagreed about this, because the evidence is so... Um, is so tricky and can be read in different ways. And some historians have argued, well, maybe there was a plot that uh, that that slaves in the community really expected in some kind of fairly sophisticated way. But not on the other hand, uh, they were wrong in thinking that the French or the Spanish might sail in. Other historians have argued that you know these there were some fires, slaves may have been involved. But, uh, but, uh, but these are like little incidents of resentments. It wasn't one big connected plot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, you know, the, 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 the prevailing reality, again, something many New Yorkers and Americans don't realize, is that New York really, as you were saying, New York really was a slave city. It was a slave colony in the sense that uh, by this period prior to the American Revolution, um, enslaved Africans were 20% of the New York City population. Mm-hmm. One, every, one out of every five people in the city, and in fact, they're scattered throughout the city. You know, they're not segregated. They live in households. They live with their masters, um, and they're working as the slaves are working as servants 
or artisans or laborers for these white masters scattered throughout the city. So the paranoia is really about, as it was the case in the, in the South at the time, you know, was uh, we have enemies in our own household, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And slavery is not, however, slavery is not abolished in New York State until, you know, 1827. It's remarkable. I mean, it's only, uh, you know, 30-some-odd years before the Civil War. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so so race, that's another theme in the book, of course, that, that comes up again and again. Not only the issue, the tensions and frictions and suspicions that are aroused by ethnic diversity, uh, but by racial diversity, too, and by the fact that New York did have this slave system in place for the first two centuries of its uh, existence, from mm-hmm. the Dutch, you know, on through our early national period. Well, well you know, you, you mentioned ethnic sensitivities, racial sensitivities. There's also class sensitivities as well. Oh, yeah. We see that in the Revolution, where we see New York portrayed two different ways as traditionally. You know, one side is a hotbed of patriot sentiment with mm-hmm. you know, people sharing their revolutionary sentiments. On the other, it's perceived as a center of Tory sentiment and one of the most loyal right. cities to the American, loyal cities to the British crown and the American colonies. Right. Yes. And I think we can argue that that's really a class dispute more than a political dispute. Well, there's a there is a strong there is a strong class element in it. There's no there's no doubt in that. Um, certainly, uh, even as early as as the mid 1760s, when the Stamp Act crisis, you know, uh, uh, befalls the colonies, and uh, you know, not not just New York, of course, all the colonial ports and all the colonies feel that this is some kind of British plot to to uh, assail uh, liberties. Um, and in New York, uh, you know, in 1765, there is and there is a basically a Stamp Act riot, which is at least from the vantage point of the contemporary observers who who committed their thoughts to paper, right? Um, it's it's the Sons of Liberty, which is the organization that's founded in that period as a patriotic uh, 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 group. Um, has it, it? It seems like it's basically an organization of artisans, uh, apprentices, sailors, um, small shopkeepers. These are not the movers and shakers of the place, who are by and large wealthy merchants, um, affluent, college-educated lawyers, um, most of whom. Um, see that their bread is buttered on the side of being very loyal to uh, the crown and to parliament, right? So there is a class element in that the Sons of Liberty, who are the real militants, the real, I mean, in, in the eyes of their, of, their, uh, of their opponents, hotheads. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the epithet that the, that, the, that the rich and the conservative repeatedly throw at the Sons of Liberty is, you know, it's a bunch of boys, sailors, and Negroes. In other words, it's, the, it's sort of the dregs. Yeah, you know, and um, and and it is true that that sort of the mob actions, you know, there is a there that's a, you know there's a New York Tea Party following the Boston Tea Party that, mm-hmm. that few people know about, where you know they copy the example of Boston and the Sons of Liberty uh, board a incoming tea ship, uh, East India Company tea ship in New York Harbor, and and and, and throw the tea overboard just as they had done in um, in Boston Harbor. Uh, and that again is sort of working men, basically, you know, who are who are who are uh, who are taking action. It's a little bit complicated by the fact that um, over and above the Sons of Liberty, playing a kind of background role is a cadre of 
of quote unquote patriotic merchants mm-hmm. um, and lawyers. Um, you know, the problem with trying to trying to argue that the American Revolution was a class war is the fact that, you know, you have someone like Governor Morris, who is a, a New York landholder and lawyer. Socially, he's a profoundly conservative guy. He's the guy who's writing in his diary privately or to his, you know, fellow uh, uh, rich patriots about his fears that, you know, we've got to contain the mob. You know, right. these guys, we agree with them in terms of the sort of constitutional issues about Parliament oppressing us, but, uh, but it is a mob, you know, and we're the men of property and standing, and it's, it's our job to kind of rein those people in, because if we don't, you know, even though we're all patriots in some regard, we may open the Pandora's box and have class war or class revolution on our hands. So there, so there are, what I'm getting at is that you can argue that the Tories, the conservatives who remain in the British camp once the American Revolution really starts, um, are dominated by these wealthy conservative gentlemen, mm-hmm. but you also find wealthy gentlemen in the in the other camp, in the in George Washington's camp. But you do seem to get a a a large number of sailors, working men, you know, craftsmen who are not wealthy who side with the patriot uh, cause. Once the revolution starts, uh, and uh, you know, George Washington is has to beat it out of New York in 1776 because uh, the British Army and Navy have basically uh, chased him out. Mm-hmm. Um, New York becomes, New York City becomes the great Tory center for the rest of the revolution. Yeah. It's really the nerve center of all the military operations, and Tories flock to New York from all over the colonies. Right. Uh, right. So I think both, again, the complexity of it is that, that it is both a patri- hotbed of patriotism, um, uh, and then it's the great Tory center. And what happens is you've got these big inflows and outflows of population. The British take over in the summer of 76, and the patriots either go into hiding or, or, or get quiet, you know, or they, they join Washington's army, or they leave the city and go to safer ground. Um, and then the Tories uh, flock in. And then at the end of the revolution, when the patriots win, there's this vast outmigration of Tories, of loyalists, um, out of New York, going either back to England or the British West Indies or British Canada, um, and um, the, the, the American Revolution is the most traumatic event in the city's history. I mean, it's a sequence of events, yeah. uh, because George Washington loses New York, at the battle, uh, you know, really in a sequence of battles. There's terrible suffering among American POWs here. There's a fire in September of 76 that burns down 500 houses, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a quarter of the housing stock. So, um, so it's, it's a complicated, fascinating series of events um, that involves people being uh, pro-independence, anti-independence, and then a fair number of neutrals, too, mm-hmm. caught in the middle. Yeah. You know, moving ahead, I have to wonder, you know, in some ways, if the war scare of the 1790s, which you described. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of com- comparable, and I think others have made this connection as well. It is, it is rather comparable to the post-9-11 fears. Oh, yeah. Terror attacks existed in New York. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and in terms of the era of the, Fren- the, era of the French Revolution and the mm-hmm. Napoleonic Wars in New York is a period of uh, very heated up, you know, heated up uh, passions, political passions, fears, uh, 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 resentments, anger, 
And uh, depending on who you are in that period, and especially, of course, this is after the revolution and, and in, into the period following the, the, uh, the adoption of the Constitution, you have the emergence of, of really the two-party system, political system that we still have today, uh, except that it's Jeffersonian Democrats, or to make things confusing, Republicans, as they were then often called, uh, against the Federalists. In other words, the, the party of Thomas Jefferson and James Madison against the party of Alexander Hamilton and John Adams with President George Washington more or less trying to stay above this political fray, but basically his political philosophy is much closer to uh, Hamilton's. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, those political divisions take on this global uh, connection, too, because... Um, uh, the uh, the Jeffersonian Democrat slash Republicans uh, are, are to, to oversimplify things. They are pro French Revolution, whereas the more conservative Federalists are are terrified by the French Revolution, especially once it takes its more radical forms in the early 1790s. Meanwhile, both the Fr- the French and the the British are at war with each other after after the revolution has begun on the high seas, and uh, depending on the particular political moment in the 1790s and early 1800s, um, English ships are seizing American ships. Uh, the French are seizing American ships, uh, arguing that these so-called neutral trading vessels are trading with the enemy. Um, you know the the uh, English see American trading vessels out of New York and Philadelphia and Baltimore and so on trading uh, with the French. The French point the finger back and say, you know, no, they're trading with the English. They're supporting our enemy, and so that you know, there's really like a, a 20 year build up to the War of 1812, where ultimately the English uh, become the the, the 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 real bad guy, the, or the most consistent bad guy uh, by the early 1800s for Americans. Uh, because they're seizing American ships and cargoes, they're seizing American sailors, right? Um, and all this sort of stuff really exacerbates tensions in New York, where you have political parties, both both parties are accusing the other of really being disloyal to America, of being traitors by virtue of their preferences for these foreign powers. You still have various immigrants pouring into New York in this period, whether they're English or Irish or French, uh, so you literally have a city at war with itself in some sense, which is another theme of the book, um, that especially in the modern period. As you say, 9-11, um, a, lot of, a lot of fear about possible attack. You know, are the English, English going to sail back up into New York har- Harbor like they did in 1776? Or are the French going to come in and, and unleash chaos, you know, anarchy, uh, and, and complete a complete leveling of society. And uh, that just sort of gets people in the streets uh, very tense towards each other in this period. Right. Well, I mean, that's, that's, I guess, a theme, like you said, a theme throughout the book, is that you know, the history of war in New York produces a sequence or a series of 9-11-like moments. Yeah, that keep yeah. Occurring. I mean, we go to the Civil War, and we have the draft riots. You know, we have the, right. the German scare and the saboteur scare in the First yes. World War, and the Second World War as well. That's and, right. And, of course, you know, we go That's forward right. from there to others. You know, stepping back, uh, uh, stepping ahead a little bit to the Civil War, and I apologize for the 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 speed with which we're traveling through the book. That's There's okay. So it's a to lot cover. to cover, a lot of territory to cover. And I want to leave stuff for our readers, for our listeners to read about. <laughs> sure. Yeah, no, that's fine. Uh, but, you know, as we look at, at the Civil War, 
you know, again, this themes of ethnicity, but also class come into play. Oh yeah, with relations between the Brahmins and the the city's poor, largely Irish poor. Right. Leaving aside the draft riots, I mean, I want to say, should should we accept the draft riots as the sole story of that relationship? No, not at all. I mean, the Civil War, uh, you know, the, the draft rights tends to, understandably so, I think, tends to dominate the, the received narrative about the Civil War in New York City because it is, to date, the most uh, bloody uh, riot in American history uh, in terms of uh, anywhere between 100 and perhaps 500 people killed and you know, millions of dollars of property and buildings destroyed and so on. Um, and an example of just flagrant violent racism um, in the North. But as you as you were intimating, um, there's more to the story of of, of New York um, in in the Civil War, um, having to do with class tension. Also, again, about fear of invasion, um, and again, somewhat merited. I mean, that's that's another large. Just stepping back for a moment, that's one of the other large themes of the book: the sense of vulnerability. That here you have this paradox of this city that that becomes certainly by the Civil War, as, as I, I think I say in the book, it's it's the capital, and it, it's by the 1860s. Uh, in fact, really before, by the 18, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, New York City is the capital of the United States in every sense but the political, mm-hmm. you know, which of course is Washington. Um, that it is the, you have this place which is enormously powerful, it's become the great immigrant magnet, it's the commercial, industrial, financial, intellectual, cultural capital of the country for both the North and the South. However, it's also precisely because it's that, it's becoming a symbol of the North for angry Southerners. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's vulnerable in that it's right on the edge of the ocean. You know, Philadelphia is 100 miles up the Delaware, right? Um, And uh, and Boston is far north. New York is right on the middle of the coast, and it's right on the ocean. It's a few miles out. You're out beyond Coney Island and Sandy Hook, and you're out in the open Atlantic. So the fear is that the Confederacy will sail in. And, in fact, you have a couple of uh, Confederate rebel cruisers during the war who who contemplate doing just that. Uh, Sems, uh, Raphael Sems mm-hmm. um, on the Alabama, and John Taylor Wood on the Tallahassee a couple of years later, 1862 and 64, really are, are seizing American cargo ships ships right off New York waters, and both of them being, you know, these rather raffish, cavalier uh, uh, um, uh, characters, uh, right out of a sort of the southern chivalry mode, right, combined with the kind of gallantry tradition that you get in the U.S. Navy before the Civil War, these guys are really, these skippers are contemplating, well, I've got this, I've got these, you know, they, they say, I'm on a, one of the fastest vessels afloat, it's a steamer armed with rifled artillery, and why don't I just sail in through the narrows there and catch New York by surprise and, and scare the heck out of them by bombarding the lower part of the city with these with the artillery and then sail out. And, and ultimately they, they get, you know, their more realistic assessment is, well, once we get in there, we're kind of bottled up. Right. And we well, that's that's what the, the reality of the New York Harbor forts comes into play as well. 
That's right, the forts, and, and even just the, the, the nautical topography, because once you're in here, you also got to have, well, how am I going to get out if I try to go up Long Island Sound, uh, through up, up the East River quickly, and I don't know Long Island Sound, you may get caught at Hellgate, mm-hmm. which had these uh, shoals and rocks, uh, uh, submarine rocks that could tear your hull to, to shreds. But yes, it's also about understanding this, this uh, fearing that you may get caught in the crossfire of this network of forts that really are begun before the uh, the War of 1812 period, uh, but then are augmented during the Civil War. These red brick, uh, the, rather these, well, some of them are red brick, mm-hmm. but red sandstone forts uh, with armed with multiple tiers of cannon um, and placed strategically around the harbor, and of course several of these still exist. Uh, no longer as fortifications, but Castle Clinton in Battery Park was one of these harbor forts, uh, now part of the National Park Service. Um, Fort Wadsworth uh, in Staten Island, uh, Fort Hamilton on the Brooklyn shore, um, Governor's Island, certainly. And I encourage New Yorkers to get out there this summer because you can get out to Governor's Island for free. It's a five-minute ferry ride from South Ferry in Manhattan. Really, if you want to see something of New York's hidden military history, you can visit Fort Jay, which was mm-hmm. built uh, between the late, 19th century, uh, late 18th century and the 1820s, uh, really is a, a more or less intact early national fort, which precisely uh, uh, makes the point that, that the authorities uh, in the early national period, in the Civil War, uh, wanted to arm the harbor to the teeth with artillery to, to deter uh, the Confederacy, you know, from sailing in. And in fact, at on Governor's Island, they still have Rodman guns from the Civil War uh, in an emplacement at uh, at Fort Jay. So the point is, yes, uh, the, there is this military uh, uh, cityscape, but again, it's on the per- primarily on the per- periphery of the city to keep a marine invasion from happening, because that's the main fear, is that you're so close to the ocean that you can have an, an, an enemy fleet come in, as happened in 1664, as happened in 1673, as happened in, uh, in 1776. So it's a reality that they have to contend with, that, uh, that you're vulnerable as a seaport. Mm-hmm. You know, look ahead to the First World War, and there's so much in that chapter and I, again, I encourage our, our listeners to read the book to to learn more about it. But I think the overriding theme of the chapter is just as in the Civil War, we're talking about New York becoming the great national city mm-hmm. at the time of the Civil War. In the First World War, New York City has become the great global city, yeah, and has has to deal with with the challenges both domestic and foreign that that brings in wartime. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, it's sort of an explosive convergence of, of factors, I think, social and political and economic. Uh, first of all, uh, as you say, it's a global city. And what's happening, I mean, by this point, Wall Street is, is uh, the banks and insurance companies and brokerages and so forth of Wall Street really have, uh, have by the early 20th century, are the... A most important it, Wall Street's become the most important uh, financial center on this side of the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, out you know, out sort of overshadowing uh, State Street in Boston or Chestnut Street in Philadelphia. Not that those aren't, not that those don't remain important. Mm-hmm. But Wall Street is is it. You know, it's New York is it. It's the big uh, uh, economic 
a dynamo uh, in terms of a metropolitan hub in the country. And, of course, what happens, uh, you know, people know that we were in world, that you, the U.S. joined World War one, but we we entered the war in in April of 1917, and the war lasted for about another year and a half. But the war had started in August of 1914, mm-hmm. so you have uh, you know what three years, something like that, almost three years of of European war um, between um, England, France, and Tsarist Russia on one side, and Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Turkey on the other. And Americans, as in a way, it's almost like a century earlier during the Napoleonic Wars, where, where New Yorkers and other Americans um, take economic advantage of, of a foreign war uh, to make money. And um, what ends up happening is an American manufacturers, bankers, and so on, uh, uh, make money hand over fist, supplying primarily the Allies. Uh, by and, and and the Jersey City waterfront, uh, in particular the Black Tom Peninsula, which was a freight depot for the Lehigh Valley Railroad, which stuck out into New York Harbor, kind of behind uh, the Statue of Liberty on the Jersey side, but right across from Lower Manhattan, um, becomes the great depot from which. Um, American businessmen are shipping American guns, you know, armaments, ammunition, mm-hmm. provisions, Lots food, uniform, you know, everything by the ton load is being loaded from this one railhead on the New Jersey shore onto freight freighters that are then leaving New York Harbor and crossing to England and France and supplying the Allied army so they can continue fighting the trench war. Um, and the Germans actually in 1916 try to blow it up. Uh, there's this massive explosion, the Black Tom explosion. Um, but on top of that economic uh, um, uh, interest that many New Yorkers have in, in the war, you have the countervailing issue that, again, is ethnic, which is that New York has more German immigrants and, and their children than any other place in the country. Um, at the turn of the century, there are 750,000 uh, German-Americans in New York City. They're about a fifth of the city population. Uh, New York had become a great destination for German as well as Irish and Italian and Jewish immigrants in the 19th century and early 20th centuries. And so you have this issue, even before we join the war, of how loyal are New Yorkers going to be if you've got this vast German population, German-American population. You also have, of course, a large Irish population in a period where Irish nationalism is very militant, and many Irish Americans look across the Atlantic and say, why should we side with England, which is oppressing us and keeping us from being an independent state? Uh, You know, maybe we should help the Germans. Um, Then you have Eastern European Jewish immigrants who look at the war across the Atlantic and say, wait a minute, this is supposed to be a war. The Allies, England and France, are supposed to be fighting for liberty and constitutionality and so on. Uh, but they're allied with Tsarist Russia, the most anti-Semitic country in the in the world, which is why we're here in New York, because we had to get out of uh, Russia and Russian Poland to flee anti-Semitism. Um, very, very, very complicated. Once we join the war, um, the Wilson administration, of course, their record on this is not very stellar. I think most scholars would agree, observers would agree. Um, the fear is that there's so many different ethnic groups and, of course, politi- 
leftists who are anti, you know, apart from the ethnic issue, New York is the great headquarters of intellectual dissent and ferment for liberal, for liberalism and, and the left. And the fear is that between these different, these conflicting or divided loyalties on the part of ethnics, um, and, uh, the fact that New York magazines and discussion groups and political and third parties and so forth are, uh, are for leftist political reasons or pacifist political reasons sort of, uh, averse to American entry into the war that you can't trust New York just like you can't trust any number of other people throughout the country. And of course the, the record of the, uh, of the Wilson administration, especially in terms of the Justice Department, and the Postal Service um, in really trying to clamp down on dissent um, uh, as anti, as disloyal or uh, as treacherous um, uh, makes New York, as, as it made much of the rest of the country in 1917, 1918, a very tricky place for, for many people to, uh, to be able to exercise what we would consider their First Amendment rights. So that is, a, New York is a cauldron. I mean, it really is a place of great tension. And this is one thing I want to say, you know, it, in general about the book is it's, because it's a book about New York, I don't want people to get the impression that this is, you know, all these issues are only happening in New York, mm-hmm. uh, that, that, you know, New York is somehow so special. I mean, many of the themes we've been talking about or, or episodes were nationwide, yes. you know, but because New York is the great, is the great city, you know, the city with a capital C, and because it is the great immigrant magnet, many of these issues are more, feel more pointed in New York. They're more conspicuous, or they're more, uh, they're more dramatic, I would say, right. which makes it all the more ironic that we've forgotten so many of them. Yeah. Well, I think you know, true, it is true that, for better or worse, you know, New York becomes the surrogate for the United States in all these conflicts. And what happens yes. in New York happens elsewhere. But I wonder, too, if that, in this case, the Second World War, New York really is almost on the front lines in a way that the mm-hmm. rest of the country is not. I mean, well, that's de- that's definitely true. In that, uh, again, this issue of it being the the most uh, the most important seaport mm-hmm. uh, during the war. I mean, New York is, for example, the most important um, supplier. Uh, for the Allies, uh, once we join the war after Pearl Harbor, um, it, it's, it's, it's ships bound from New York convoys of, of, of cargo ships, again, carrying sort of the weaponry and supplies of war and the provisions and the blood plasma and the locomotives and the crated airplanes and the tanks. You know, it's, it's stuff coming into New York Harbor from factories and foundries and refineries across the country. New York is the great port. It's being loaded in New York and shipped across the Atlantic, uh, you know, in, in, in large convoys, which the U-boats are trying to get at. Uh, and these convoys are, are, are destined not only for England and after D-Day for France, but uh, for the Soviet Union, yeah. um, Archangel and Murmansk. Um, and, uh, and, and you know, and Hitler knows this, uh, and his staff knows this. And um, New York really becomes a target for U-boats. It also becomes the target more than really any other place, arguably. Uh, I mean, I think Washington is even is even less vivid in the Nazi imagination than New York City. It's a place you want to bomb if you can get away with it, if you can develop the technology, especially the uh, 
long-distance bombers that can carry a fuel capacity to make it over the Atlantic, um, which, of course, they never managed to do. Uh, the war ends uh, by, by, you know, 43, 44, the Luftwaffe has other problems on its hands rather than having, you know, getting to entertain fantasies of bombing New York City. Mm-hmm. But uh, New York is, becomes, this, not only is it the play, and it's, of course, it's also the great point of departure for troops, for yeah. troop ships. Um, I, you know, and it's interesting, there are, I think, nine designated, I think I'm getting this right, it's in an end note in the book, I think I think the U.S. had nine designated uh, uh, troop ports, you know, for 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 uh, for em- embarkation during the war. New York is the is the most important. The second most important is San Francisco, which of course is they're, they're feeding the Pacific War. Right. Uh, but New York, uh, <laughs> San Francisco, which is the second most important, has only about uh, half as many uh, troops leaving it. Than does New York on the Atlantic side, and of course Boston and Philadelphia and some of the Gulf ports right. and so on um, were important. But it just shows you just how dominant New York was well, for the war effort. When you think about New York ports too, you have to think about places like Bayonne and Brooklyn. And oh, Hills, absolutely, and part of that. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things that when I worked at South Street Seaport Museum, one of the things that we we were always interested in is. You know, New York, the New York City area really is a territory cut up by waterways, whether you're talking about bays or rivers or, or estuaries. Um, and yet, uh, in terms of sort of jurisdictional lines, that large harbor area includes New York City. It includes, uh, you know, the five boroughs of New York City. It also includes uh, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And um, and if you you have to look at the port as sort of an economic organism. Forget about the line separating. You know, you cross a tunnel or a bridge, and you're in another mm-hmm. state. Um, economically, uh, industrially. That whole port is a sort of catchment area. It's a sponge drawing in, in terms of rail lines in particular, uh, and local fa- refineries and factories, which are, as you say, in Bayonne. They're in uh, Jersey City. They're in Hoboken. They're out on the island. I mean, this is the period uh, by World War II out in Nassau County. Nassau County is becoming a great um, um, aeronautics center oh, yeah. industrially. With with uh, factories building Grumman's, you know, you got Republic and Seversky and any number of other um, uh, uh, airport uh, airplane manufacturers out in, in in Long Island. Who, of course, well, how are those how are those planes getting yeah. to the Western Front? They're being crated up and shipped to, from New York Harbor and being, uh, you know. Uh, trains are taking them into New York Harbor on the Long Island side. So yeah, no, it's 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 not just New York City. It's it's New York City is at the heart of this sort of beating, you know, this sort of vibrant uh, economic organism uh, throughout its history. That that at moments of war or international stress, I mean, one of the ironies, or maybe it isn't so ironic. We know this that war is good for an economy. Yeah. It's bad for the people who lose their lives or their limbs or their or their uh, you know their emotional stability while fighting. But on the home front, war can be very good for an economy. And repeatedly, whether you're talking about the Civil War, World War One, 
World War II, even the Korean War to some extent. Um, the military spending, the government spending uh, to to mobilize for war is of great importance to uh, not only investors and 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 uh, owners of businesses, but for literally millions of working people, you know, in and around New York City. Oh, yeah. Well, it's also the issue, too, I think, of, you know, developing a national identity and assimilation that we see in the uh-huh. Second World War as well. I mean, New York, yeah. I mean, the only comparable places I can think of, maybe San Francisco or Chicago, right. in terms yeah. of such a diverse community. And in New York, you have Polish-Americans, Italian-Americans, Germans, yeah. Chinese, all different nationalities living together and, you know, being compelled to get along uh, right during wartime, how did right. all these groups interact in, in the war? I mean, were there, were there well, tensions or? Well, you know, it, it the the World War Two in particular, of course, is is the Great War where Americans really pull together. And I, I don't think that's just a cliche or a stereotype. Mm-hmm. I think it really happened. You know, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, Roosevelt. One of the fascinating things, footnotes I read about, which is not in the book, but I, I encountered it in my research, is that Roosevelt. Sometime early in the war, it's forty-two. I think it's the White House holds a contest. They ask the American people, "What do you want to call this war?" And and Roosevelt wants to call it the Survival War. In other words, if we want our democratic ideals to survive, we have to fight and win this war against against uh, you know the three evils of Hitler, Mussolini, and, and the Japanese. Um, so there's a, there's this sense in which, hey, you know, this is about. Uh, uh, we all do have to pull together. And it is true that after Pearl Harbor, um, you know, the so-called suspect populations in New York, uh, if you will, the, the German-Americans, the Italian-Americans, and the small Japanese-American community, the German-Americans and the Italian-Americans basically make it very clear, uh, by and large, that they're going to join in the war effort. There are all kinds of conspicuous events, you know, bond rallies in Little Italy, this sort of thing. Um, the Japanese American community is so small, as opposed to the West Coast, where, of course, we know the story of the internments. Um, it's a sad story in that Japanese Americans, many of whom probably were utterly innocent, were interned, uh, you know, innocent of any treason or espionage or anything like that, were interned on Ellis Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're a small community. It's several hundred people, maybe 2,000 at most. Uh, but you know, there, there is a backstory to this, which is in the 30s, before we joined the war, um, there are these conflicting ideologies. You do have the German-American Bund parading down East uh, 86th Street. In other words, the American Nazi Party, which has its headquarters, uh, its national headquarters, really, in uh, the so-called Yorkville neighborhood on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, which was heavily German at the time. Um, Italians, uh, before, before, Hi- before Mussolini joins Hitler and declares war on the U.S. after Pearl Harbor at the end of 41, um, many Italian Americans, uh, are very proud of, uh, fascism. I mean, it's, it's, it's just the fact that they look at Italy and they look at what Mussolini's done and many of them are proud. Uh, and there are fascist parties, fascist groups in New York City, you know, in East Harlem, which was Italian, heavily Italian, on the Lower East Side and Italian parts of the Bronx. 
Um, but at the same time, as always in New York, you get these sort of conflicts within conflicts within conflicts, so that within the Italian American community in particular, you get, there's a very, there's a minority of very leftist Italian Americans who are literally fighting with the fascists in the streets. Um, and, um, and so the 30s are a period, of course, partly due to the Great Depression, partly due to all the international turmoil in Europe and Asia. The 30s is sort of a cauldron in New York where, you know, whether you're looking at Jews, Irish Americans, German Americans, and Italian Americans, Chinese, Chinatown residents, you know, Chinese Americans, Japanese Americans, it almost feels like everyone's out in the streets, you know, yelling slogans at each other and sometimes uh, trading uh, blows, you know. Um, once the war comes, um, uh, uh, you know, more or less everyone pulls together. There are some ugly instances of anti-Semitism during the war in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are actually real German agents who are landed uh, uh, on Long Island. It's almost with, like a comic with, with, opera, though. Uh, like, it's, it, it, it is. I mean, it's, if it wasn't, if these guys weren't executed, you know, uh, very quickly uh, in, in, in uh, 42, um, for their attempted sabotage, um, and, and in ways which some constitutional scholars feel is unseem- was done with unseemly haste, mm-hmm. that the Supreme Court, which was appealed to um, after these guys were sentenced to death, uh, really uh, sort of bowed down to Roosevelt in a sense, um, who wanted to make examples of these guys. Um, but anyway, yeah, there's a so there is this sort of dark. Uh, 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 ending to it, which is that I think it's six of the eight guys are executed. It is a comedy. It's a comedy of errors, and it's, you can almost do it as a sort of tongue-in-cheek thing, where these with these eight German agents who are recruited in Germany, all of them, I believe, had been in America during the 20s or 30s, so they're believed to be, you know, they they know America. So if we send them across on submarines, on U-boats, and land them secretly on beaches in on Long Island and in Florida. Um, we can trust these guys after we've, we've trained them a bit to to you know plant explosives in various uh, strategic uh, sites such as railroad terminals, uh, industrial plants, um, and again with a Nazi obsession with the Jews. One of their instructions was, well, if you have any explosives left over, go into New York City and other major cities and blow up Jewish-owned department stores. Yeah. But it's completely naive. It's completely half-baked. And on top of that, uh, some of these eight guys are, are fairly committed Nazis, but, but a whole bunch of them are not. Mm-hmm. And two of these guys, uh, George John Dash and Ernest Berger, once they get to New York, they, they basically land on a beach in Amagansett, Long Island, in the Hamptons, board a train, get to New York, and these two guys look at each other and say, you know, we gotta, we, this is not going to happen. And, and Dash actually goes to Washington and turns himself into the FBI, which is how this whole plot is, is then uh, exposed and foiled. But from the very start, it's this odd, uh, naive uh, Nazi attempt to, you know, we're going to disrupt the American industrial economy with eight, uh, eight Aryan, you know, guys who are going to send over on submarines. Uh, but it did, again, of course, ruffle many feathers and got many people throughout the country uh, very, uh, very concerned. And once again, New York is one of their, one of their targets, you know, or certainly the base of operations where, where the guys who were landed on Long Island are going to use to uh, infiltrate various industrial plants and attempt to blow them up. We get to the Cold War. Right. And um, New York, again, 
it's a centerpiece. And we see New York again becoming the a surrogate, I think, for the rest of the nation. You know, different yeah. ways. We have you know New York becoming the, a city of fear again, a, a city of you know create conflicted loyalties or purportedly conflicted loyalties. Um, I know at Queens College and at other campuses there were loyalty oaths required yes. of, of faculty and students. Right. Um, and of course, it's the the physical artifacts of the bomb shelters and the Nike sites scattered throughout right. the area, even today. Well, yes. I want to ask you, based upon you know what you've written and, and what you found, what do you think is the most defining moment of the Cold War for New York? Oh boy, uh, that's a good question. Well, I mean, defining moment, I think. You could answer that in several ways. I mean, I think this answer may surprise you or it may not. Mm -hmm. I think the defining moment is uh, when in 1949, actually, it's divulged, the Russians divulge that they've they've got the bomb and they've tested it. And so now it's in somehow it's become an even uh, game board or, you know, a more even playing field because up to that point uh, we had monopolized after Hiroshima and uh, Nagasaki. We, of course, had the bomb and nobody else did. And that's the moment, although as early as 45, 46, you're getting these these editorial, you have reporters and, and, and journalistic pundits in New York and elsewhere already saying literally within a day or two of, uh, of um, Hiroshima, you know, you're getting these editorials in the New York papers saying, well, uh, now we've, we've, uh, we've opened Pandora's box and uh, we're, in a new, we're, we're in a new epoch of history. You know, it's that immediate. It's it's not like, oh, well, we just were in, got into the war and everyone's happy, although that was part of it, certainly. You know, was the primary, was the sort of the principal reaction. But you get people, writers and thinkers in New York, saying, well, wait a minute, now we have this immense destructive power, the U.S. does, and what does that mean? And, you know, maybe what does it mean for our big cities? Because it ain't going to be some little cornfield in Iowa that uh, if, if our enemy, whoever that may be, gets the bomb, is going to be the target. You know, it's going to be Manhattan Island and Chicago and San Francisco and Los Angeles and Philadelphia and Boston and so forth. So, um, so the Russians getting the bomb at the end of the 1940s immediately poses issues, sort of, you know, uh, uh, raises the ante on this kind of fear and this kind of speculation, and immediately uh, raises the ante for American cities. And, and the ultimate American city, you know, bigger than any other place, is New York. So, um, and, and whatever, and in terms of the urban Cold War um, that unfolds for the next, uh, especially over the next, uh, say, 15 years, 12 or 15 years in America, um, you see it unfolding from that moment in terms of precisely that kind of Cold War landscape that you mentioned, the, the, the uh, fallout shelters and the bomb shelters and the basements of apartment buildings. And, of course, uh, even though they date from the early 60s, the most ubiquitous um, feature of the Cold War that New Yorkers see every day, I mean, Americans do. This is, again, an example where this is all over the country, but you can see it anywhere in New York City that you have remember is those yellow and black fallout shelter signs yeah. uh, outside uh, any number of buildings that's from 61 1961 when Kennedy and Khrushchev were at loggerheads over Berlin uh, but 
That and in the early 50s through the early 60s, the so-called uh, Operation Alert drills, where people had to, uh, were supposed to, and this was announced ahead of time, in New York and other large cities, this was the, 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 the uh, Federal Civil Defense Administration, which was the ancestor of FEMA, which we have today. Every year they would run from, I believe it's 51 through 61, they would run a basically a nuclear war air raid drill where a siren would go off and um, everyone was supposed to basically duck into a subway station or into the lobby of a building, stay away from windows. And this was supposed to be the drill that, that prepared New Yorkers and other American city dwellers for uh, you know, saving themselves should the Russians uh, drop the bomb. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's a period in American history. I'm too young, really, to, I, I, I was born in 59, mm-hmm. so I miss this. Uh, but people who, who were in school, you know, and again, not just New York, throughout the country, uh, in the 50s and early 60s, talk about the duck and cover drills as something that was part of their emotional education. Of uh, you know you do school drills where uh, where okay the teacher would say okay duck and cover and you had to get under your desk as if cowering under a wooden school desk was going to save you from the H bomb yeah. you know um, and so that 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 would be my answer to your question is that you know a decade and a half certainly through. Um, you know, Vietnam, of course, then sort of diverts a lot of the energy. It's not like people stop worrying about the about the bomb, but the ground wars um, um, end up, uh, in a sense, um, um, seeming more, con- you know, ironically enough, more containable. Uh, you know, it 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 is from the late '40s on where that fear of the bomb is what really, as far as I'm concerned, defines the Cold War for a city like New York. Well, I remember the Now News concerts in '82. Oh yeah, yeah, and it segues sort of as I as I as I point out in the book, the anti-nuke movement, um, which uh, is very in- very interesting, the anti-civil defense movement in 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 New York, which really became the hub for it. I think it's fair to say um, another under uh, sort of an under. Um, appreciated moment in the history of urban social activism, uh, whether you agree with it or not, you know, was that by the mid-50s you had religious pacifists in New York. New York was a great center for organizations that were, uh, that on the basis of religious conscience, um, were anti-war, anti-armament. Uh, so you had uh, the Fellowship of Reconciliation, you had the Catholic Worker Movement, um, and it's true there are other cities. On Philadelphia, had the American Friends Service Committee, which was a Quaker organization that that uh, participated in in this kind of movement as well. But New York becomes the place where, during these Operation Alert air raid drills, um, committed pacifists like Dorothy Day of the of the Catholic Workers or A.J. Musty of the Fellowship of Reconciliation. Um, do these acts of civil disobedience where they, uh, we will not go underground. In other words, we will not, the siren goes off, we will not comply and be complicit with this charade that if we meekly go down into the air raid shelter, uh, you know, we're, everything's going to be hunky-dory, we're all going to survive. That's nonsense. The way to, to, the way to respond to this is to, is to um, disobey the order and march in the street or stay sitting in, you know, in the park um, 
under the threat of arrest, um, and to make the point that the only way to deal with the threat of nuclear war is to end the threat of nuclear war. In other words, to disarm and re- reach some kind of, uh, you know, detente with, with the, with the Iron Curtain, with the, with the Soviets, or with the Red Chinese, uh, once they have the bomb. Um, and this movement is what's fascinating about it is you literally had by the late 50s, early 60s, you literally had hundreds of people planning for civil disobedience against um, Operation Alert. There are these big rallies in City Hall Park in New York City where hundreds of primarily, I mean, there are college students, but many just middle-class couples who have children are there courting arrest, you know, because they don't believe in this, and they're invoking Mahatma Gandhi, and, and it's it's... It's, of course, at precisely the moment where the civil rights movement in the South is taking off. Um, so you have a uh, conjunction of those uh, sort of pacifist philosophies. And New York is, 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 uh, is the launching point, one very important launching point for this movement, which then carries on through the Vietnam period and then to the No Nukes uh, concerts and events that you alluded to, you know, in the 80s. And, in fact, it's, uh, some of the people, it's the same personnel in some cases. Yeah. Uh, people who are old enough to to have been involved in pacifism in the 50s are still involved in pacifism and anti-armament uh, concerns in the 80s and yeah. beyond. And yet, though, we, we overlook the fact and the, the rush to promote that narrative. And you, you, you kind of restore to the, to, the, to the story the idea that you do have a, a counter-response as well by uh, conservatives or even oh, yeah. middle-class folks in New York. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially in the Vietnam period. I mean, this is one thing that that gets overlooked. And as a matter of fact, I'm I, 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 I'm also a cur- my, the other hat I wear is as a as a curator of of history exhibitions. And for those of your listeners who are interested, there's an exhibition that I curated at the Museum of the City of New York. Mm-hmm on Fifth Avenue, which is up and will be up for a couple of years, called Activist New York, where we where we investigate the history of uh, social activism in New York's history with artifacts and and film and movie uh, 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 photographs and so forth. But the point is, and one of the things we illustrate there that that overlaps with the book is that people always think of New York, quite rightly, as a kind of center of the American left. I mean, again, to mention this, the, the usual suspects, I mean, New York, Chicago, San Francisco, Bay Area, um, play, you take those three places, and, you know, you can tell most of the history of, of left-wing political thought and activism in the country's history. Uh, but New York also, and this is overlooked, is was a center of, of conservatism. For one thing, William F. Buckley was here. Yeah. You know, he wasn't in Orange County, California. He was uh, in the the nation center of intellectual thought, opinion, and uh, and uh, finance, i.e., New York City. And then, so you have a kind of more you have a New York is a center of patrician kind of Cold War anti-communism on the part of intellectuals and pundits like you know William Buckley and National Review, his magazine. But on a more grassroots level, you have neighborhoods of middle class and working class, mostly white New Yorkers, um, um, German Americans, Irish Americans, Polish Americans, Italian Americans, even some Jewish Americans mm-hmm. uh, by the 1960s who are, you know, cold warriors. And, and they're cold warriors, maybe not in some cases for deeply held ideological reasons, but also they're, they're, they're uh, patriots. They, 
uh, see serving the U.S. Uh, if the president and Congress are at war with the communists in Vietnam, then it's our duty to back them up. And uh, that leads to another one of these episodes of the city at war with itself, which is that in New York you have a, uh, if you will, a right wing as well as a left wing response to the to the uh, Vietnam War in particular as a Cold War, you know, episode uh, with uh, with with hawks and doves, as they were called at the time, you know, pro-war and anti-war demonstrators clashing in the streets, clashing at parades and rallies, mm-hmm. clashing on the campus of Columbia University in 1968 when leftist students uh, try to take over the campus and protest against the war and a bunch of other social issues. Um, and again in 1970 where um, the so-called hard hat riots where conservative construction workers who are among other things helping to build the World Trade Center at the time uh, basically crash an anti-war rally by students on Wall Street and a sort of melee ensues where uh, hard hats start wailing on the students and beating them up and uh, you see these two New Yorks, the, the, the New York of the college campuses and the leftist and liberal tradition clashing with, you know, what came, became known as the silent majority of the outer boroughs, the, the working stiffs and their families uh, of, you know, the Bronx and Brooklyn and Queens and Staten Island, who are really, uh, there's a cultural rift. They're, they live in a different city. You know, um, and uh, then the, the liberal students do, and you have something resembling civil war in the streets uh, that only ends in the early '70s as we wind down um, our involvement in Vietnam, mm-hmm. and that's also one of the, to me it's sort of one of these hidden or under undersung undertold stories that New York has been a center of of um, conservative sentiment and conservative thought and conservative activism. Um, at the same time as it's been a great headquarters for the American left. And uh, you see that, you know, that's no more, the the place where you see that so abundantly clearly is during the 60s -hmm. in New York, during the Vietnam era. So I I was trying to restore that sense of a city in conflict with itself uh, in that section of the book. Okay, okay. Well, I think you did a good job of it. Um, Oh, thank you. Kudos on that. Bring us to a close, I guess. Um, Yeah. It's uh, it's an interesting book, Stephen. Thank and you. I, I I urge people to read it for all of these different things, but also because you know I think where where the book excels is you just you point out the historical parallels mm-hmm. that exist over time um, through these different conflicts and also with the current state of affairs today. Sure. Um, yeah. Is that ever going to change? You think? Is that ever going to change? Yeah. I don't, uh, that's a good question. I think human nature would have to change, unfortunately, in the sense that, uh, I mean, one of the things that is rather depressing about this history is that you see um, New Yorkers, like other Americans, repeatedly uh, at loggerheads with each other, at each other's throats. Yes, great moments of, uh, of unity and patriotism and nationalism, but because New York it remains such a magnet for the peoples of the world. Mm-hmm. So that now, as in the 19th century, you had you know, Jews, Italians, Germans, uh, Irish, sometimes at each other's throats, 
um, for various reasons. Today, of course, you have a city with a growing Muslim population, a growing third world population, has been since the mid-60s, 1960s, when the immigration laws became liberalized. Um, I'm, I, I think that as long as New York remains one of the, wor- the great world cities, it's going to be vulnerable to, you know, and hopefully not episodes like 9-11, but it's going to be a target, a symbolic target, precisely because it's a tolerant place, precisely because it's such an economically powerful place. Um, it's a symbol of America for many of our enemies and for many, you know, bad guys. It's just true. Um, and uh, so vigilance, uh, you know, the, the sort of the kind of, uh, the kind of counterpoint between vulnerability and vigilance is not going to go away as long as people remain people, you know, as long as there's war, as long as there's international strife and conflict. As you will remember, I mean, what I try to do in the book was to bookend it with these two anecdotal moments. The one that I mentioned earlier where on 9-11 I watched as a, as a man uh, yelled out, you know, while watching the towers, you know, billow smoke, a guy yelled out in my presence, it's time to bomb some mosques. Yeah. I end the book with a more hopeful story that I just hope we'll be able, that these kinds of things will happen to counterbalance the anger and the fear and the paranoia and the rage that people feel. It's the story of uh, a, a cafe owner in Queens who, five days after 9-11, uh, four young men entered his cafe late at night. This man was an Egyptian immigrant, uh, and his establishment was identifiably an Arab uh, restaurant. And these four guys came in, and they were so enraged at 9-11 that they busted up the place. Um, and the cops, police, apprehended these guys shortly thereafter. They brought them back to this gentleman, uh, Labib Salama, to press charges. And Labib said, look, there's enough hatred already. Let them go. An hour later, these four guys came back, apologized to him, and helped him clean up the damage that they had, uh, they had wrought on his business. And then they sat for hours drinking coffee and talking. And um, it's, it's, you know, in a way, it's almost a fairy tale ending. But the fact that this actually happened also brought up moments in the city's history of decency, of humanity, of courage in the face of hatred, where New Yorkers saved or tried to help their fellow New Yorkers who were being targeted during wartime uh, unfairly, whether it was uh, black New Yorkers during the draft riots of the Civil War, where some New Yorkers uh, intervened for them. Um, other episodes where people like David DeVries tried to save the Indians during the Dutch period from, from Dutch hostility. Um, and so what you end up with is a note of, uh, of the fact that I think urban life remains livable and positive, and you rely on the decency of ordinary people. Mm-hmm. But there's always the other side of it, which is that before these guys apologized, they busted up the guy's store, right? And um, so it's a, it's a mixed it's a mixed prognosis. It's 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 one which uh, I think we're going to continue having this kind of history unfold. But hopefully, New Yorkers will rise to the occasion, learn something from their history, and respond uh, with the better angels of their nature, as as Lincoln would have put it. You know. Well, let's hope so, Stephen. Yes. What's next? You, you're, What's you next? Just finish this book. Where do you go from here? 
Well, um, I'm going to continue curating museum exhibitions on New York City history. Um, I want to write a book uh, on a very different topic uh, that has, has very little to do with war, but uh, although, of course, war will intersect with it, which is I want to write a history of obscene and dirty language in American history from basically from Plymouth Rock to gangster rap. And the more I look at this, I mean, some people have, have, uh, have touched upon this in their work, but I think there's room to write a really detailed and funny and hopefully thoughtful book about how from the from the colonies on till today, um, Americans uh, have liked to curse and swear and cuss each other out and talk trash to each other. And uh, I think in some ways it's similar in that it's kind of a hidden history or a forgotten history or suppressed history, you know, that, that, that needs to be brought out. And, um, you know, some of the stuff I'm encountering is really just hilari- hilarious. Uh, but that's a different, that's a different uh, you know, interview or a different, conversation, but I, I, I'm already having fun with it, and, and I'm looking forward to writing this up. Well, I look forward to listening to that that interview when it happens. I won't be the person doing it. Well, so, maybe, you know, the sailors and soldiers like to curse, right? Do. So there well, may be, there may, there may be uh, we, we may be able to have an interview on sort of a component of the book that's yet to be developed. We'll uh, see. No comment there. Okay. <laughs> Steven, thanks for joining us. Uh, and it's been a pleasure. Uh, on behalf of New Books in the Military History and to all of our listeners, thank you for checking in. You've been listening to our interview with Stephen H. Jaffe, the author of New York at War, Four Centuries of Combat, Fear, and Intrigue in Gotham. This is your host, Bob Wintermute, thanking you for listening to New Books in Military History.